the epistle of James chapter 2 verse 14 and following. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The literary structure of this particular passage is that of diatribe, often used in the first and second century in literature. You remember some of the church apologists had diatribes against an imaginary and sometimes an actual opponent. And there would be an intellectual back and forth, a reasoning back and forth. And that's what you have here. James is, is positing a particular spokesman who says certain things, and then James counters it with affirmation and illustration. And so what you see is he's talking about, he calls this person on one occasion a foolish person here. And it doesn't mean that the person is a fool. The word simply means it's someone that has... Uh, an ignorance or an, a, a misunderstanding about something. And the only tinge of negativity to that is this person's hard-headed in their opinion. And so James is adopting this extremely um, evocative kind of approach to get the person disrupted and disabused from these false notions. And the false notion is this. And he'll have two negative illustrations and two positive illustrations. Faith, uh, James is talking about faith. He's talking about belief. He's talking about authentic, real, believing, saving, justifying, vindicating, redeeming faith. And it's one of the very best passages that we have anywhere uh, in the Bible about faith not only because it sets forth the truth so strongly, but because it illustrates it so well. The first illustration we looked at last week, the first illustration is the person who says he has faith and then doesn't do anything to follow through. And of course, we saw that with the person that is ill-clothed or naked 
and the person that is ill-fed and hungry, when you say to them, go your way, be warmed and filled, and do absolutely nothing to help them in any way, to say you have faith and not provide the works. The word for works that's used here throughout comes from a Greek word um, where we get our word energy. It's the word erge. And it, it's more than just a particular uh, item of obedience or a particular act. It is an energy. It is an impelling force. It is a propelling force that moves along, that, that comes from faith. Faith at the root, energy produces. It's the sap that flows through. It is the, the animating force of faith. It's faith that is authentic then exudes and projects forth this energy. It sort of bursts out of any idle profession and moves to an actual possession and an actual accomplishment. In fact, the passage here talks about in works, faith are fulfilled. They're completed. Faith without works is dead. Authentic faith has this energy in it that moves forth to actual work and accomplishment. So the first thing he talks about is someone that merely professes faith. That's dead. Then the next illustration he uses in the text is someone, is the, are, are the demons. The demons who make a, not only a profession of faith, but a profound statement of theological understanding. The devils say God is one or there is one God. That's good theology. In fact, that's the basis of the Hebrew confession of faith, the famous Shema in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. This speaks, of course, if we were to break it down theologically and, and call upon Burkhoff or some of our good uh, thinkers and clear thinkers in our tradition, we would say this speaks of the singularity of God. That is that God is one and there is none else beside him. He is unique. He is solo. He is alone. He alone is God and there are no other gods. It also can speak to the unity of God. God is one in that he is one essence. He's not compounded. He's not divided. He's not put together. He's not confounded and compounded in any way. But he is in his integrity and in his unity, one. That's good theology. We, we could make a sermon on that. And the demons from hell know every detail of that theology that's absolutely possible to know in their heart. They know it. And yet, do they believe God? Do they trust God? Do they fall upon their knees for repentance? Do they approach God in any way? Is there any provision for their salvation? Is there any saving faith involved? Not at all. All they can do is shudder in fear before the awesomeness and the power of God, knowing that their posture in rebellion against God will bring them nothing but damnation for all eternity. So faith that's pretty fleshed out theologically by itself is dead. That's two negative illustrations. Faith without works, a faith that is a mere profession, and a faith that is theologically on the beam, 
but is not operative and not received and not understood and not completed is dead. I'm glad he did not leave it there. Instead, he gave us two illustrations, two beautiful, wonderful, incredible illustrations of faith that is operative, faith that is energetic, faith that is active, faith that works, faith that gets something done, faith of accomplishment, faith of fruition, faith that he calls in this text complete. It's the word teleos. It means it reaches its goal. It reaches its end. Faith works its way out. And the first person he speaks of is Abraham. The second one is Rahab. I hope I don't get stalled out here too long on Abraham because both of these illustrations are extremely helpful, I think, in faith. Let's look at Abraham first. And he says, in talking to the the imaginary uh, opponent in the diatribe, do you want to be shown you foolish person, that faith apart from works is dead? You mean to tell you? You mean to show it to me? To demonstrate? Let me give you an example. Abraham. Abraham was justified when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Do you all remember the story pretty well from the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22? I don't need to retell the story, but Abraham, the father of faith, God had promised him way back in chapter 12 of Genesis, God called him out of the earth of the Chaldees. And then in chapter 15, we've got the story where God made a covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant in which he promised him certain things and spelled out all that he would do for him. And in the process of doing that, the Lord talked about an offspring. And in the process of talking about an offspring, he was talking ultimately, of course, we now know about Jesus Christ. And as the Lord was talking to Abraham about Jesus Christ, Abraham believed in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that God accounted it to him for righteousness. Did you get that? God preached the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the seed, the offspring. And Abraham believed it, and God reckoned it for righteousness. The word that's used for justify in this passage and in almost every other passage in the New Testament is the word dikaio in some form of it. And there's two senses in which the word are used. They're both tinged with forensics. They're They're legal terms. The one that we think of, especially in the episode we just counted about Abraham believing God and it was counted for righteousness, Paul will mention that. And the the tinge of the word there for justification is that someone is justified. That is, they are made right or put right before a judge or before the law. They are made right. They are declared right. It is a verdict of a law court. A person is justified. They are right. And that's what happened to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 when God gave him the promise and the covenant. He was accounted righteous. He didn't have to do anything. In fact, when it was over with, there was a ceremony that, a sacrificial ceremony a bloodletting ceremony of the cutting of the covenant. And you can read the whole story. It's a fascinating story 
of, of Abraham and the Lord having that ceremony that night together to ratify that, con that covenant that God had made with Abraham. But Abraham did nothing but hear the promise and believe the promise. And it was faith without any merit, faith without any desert, faith without any works, faith without any obedience in the sense of doing positive things. He was justified, made right, declared to be right, set right before the verdict of God. So that there, there is therefore now no condemnation to Abraham. Faith without works. Paul talks a lot about it in Romans and Galatians and we're very familiar with what Paul says. And Paul uses that particular story of Abraham in Genesis 15. But that's not the illustration that James uses. James uses another episode in the life of Abraham many years later, many years later. God gives the promise to Abraham that he would have a son. And there's about 15 years and there's no son. Not only that, Abraham gets old, his wife gets older, and he begins to wonder if he's ever going to have a son, and he knows everything depends upon that son. And so he takes a, a, a wife, he takes two wife, the handmaiden of his, his wife Sarah, Hagar, and he sires a seed, as much as he could possibly have a seed, here it is, little Ishmael. And he said, oh, that Ishmael would live before the Lord. He loved Ishmael, and he knew that Ishmael was the one. But the Lord told him that in Isaac, your seed will be called. And it was another dozen years or more before Isaac was born. 30 years Abraham has this promise hanging over his head and no physical evidence that it will ever be fulfilled. Now that's walking by faith right there. But that's not the whole story. The faith is not completed. The faith has not reached its goal. Finally, little Isaac is born and you know the story. And Isaac grows up to be a fine young lad, a teenager. And God calls upon Abraham in Genesis 22 down the down the road a little, almost a, a full generation down the road, he calls upon him to take Isaac, and you know the story there, to take Isaac and to take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him upon an altar, consume in fire this seed. And Abraham, and it's a wonderful story, I love preaching on Abraham and Isaac, but it's a story, let me just give you the bottom line, it's an incredible story of a father and a son, a heavenly father and a son. It's a story about a seed, a sacrifice. It's a story about God fulfilling his promise. But the, but the story concludes with this particular affirmation from God. When Abraham raised his hand to bring the knife down to slit the throat of the sacrificial victim, his only begotten son. His hand was stayed by the voice. It said, don't do it. And the sacrifice was provided in a ram. The Lord had provided a sacrifice, a substitute for Isaac. And Isaac was spared and he was not slaughtered and he was not burned. He was not consumed. But rather the ram was 
in his place. And this is what the voice said. I now know that you believe me. Didn't God know that all along? But it took that supreme act of willing, humble, almost um, inexplicable obedience to follow through on that faith that Abraham had been walking in all that time. And Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness. And on this occasion, he demonstrated, projected and put it up in large letters upon the screen that he in fact did believe God. And this work, this act, this emotion, this energy of moving toward this sacrifice and getting right up to the very tip of the knife was Abraham's justification. Because the other legal sense of that word is that someone is vindicated. Not just set right, but vindicated, proved to be right. That it's demonstrated. And this is what James is talking about. True faith goes beyond just simply a possession of faith and a profession of faith, but moves to a vindication of the faith, showing that it's the real deal. That it's not phony and void and empty in any way, but it is the real, authentic faith. And that's what Abraham did. And so James sets this out. Says, you want me to show you an example of works? And there it is. A real faith, a real true faith has all of this working. All of this working. It is not shorted and truncated in any way. But it is completed, it's fulfilled, it's brought forth. Interesting, James then will fill in the final, put down the final bottom line. He will say, faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. That accounting of righteous, that imputed righteousness, that verdict of righteous was completed, set forth, demonstrated, showed. It came to its end. It was fulfilled. It reached its fulfillment in that act. That's faith. That's why he's called the father of faith. And if we want a summary of how it works, just uh, look at the great faith chapter in Hebrews 11 and listen to verse 17. By faith Abraham when he was tested. And by the way, do you remember anything about what James says in chapter 1 about testing? <laughs> that's, that's what Abraham is undergoing here. James is talking on the same subject. He hasn't changed his subject. By faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. That's verse 17 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. He who had already received the promises, the free gift of salvation, without merit, without works, without desert, he had already received it. It was his. It was locked in. 
but he was in the act of offering up his only son through whom it had been said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Real faith will take its, take its journey all the way to the end, to fruition, to completion, to fulfillment. It's interesting, there's a little note here which just jumps out at me every time I read it. What in the world was going on in Abraham's mind? What was he thinking? I don't think he was thinking about what really happened. I don't think he was thinking, well, I'm going to go through this. I'm going to put the wood up here and I'm going to start the fire and I'm going to have everything ready and I'm going to get Isaac bound and put him on the altar and I'm going to do everything I know to do to make a sacrifice. And I believe that at the last minute, God's going to stop my hand. I don't think he was thinking that. Scripture says he wasn't. What was he thinking? He was thinking that even after he sacrificed Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead Abraham was a believer in the resurrection of the dead. And that's gospel. He believed in the substitute when he took the ram out of the thicket and put him in Isaac's place on the altar. That's gospel. Someone dying in the place of the victim. And that's the, that's the, way, that's the way it comes to it. Well, let's talk about Rahab. I didn't want to get carried away on Abraham. I've got about one minute to talk about Rahab. Joshua chapter 2, do you remember the story? Boy, it helps if y'all know your Bible. It's easy to preach to people who know the Bible. And I know that most of you know it pretty well, better than I do in some cases, I'm sure. We've got it right before us. Joshua 2, Rahab. Moses sends two spies into the land just before they were, they were camped out just to the other side of the Jordan. They were going to invade the land. They were going to go across the Jordan, across the Jordan plain. And the first big city there was Jericho. So, um... Moses sent out two spies to go and spy out the land and to spy out Jericho. This was before God gave him the real game plan of how he was going to march around the city and all that. He was figuring out how he was going to do it. And so in they go to spy out. And there in Jericho, they were accommodated by Rahab. Now, Rahab is called all through the Bible a harlot. But it also is indicated that she may have been an innkeeper, which, of course, you can see the convenience of that. <laughs> she ran a hotel. And so the men stayed at this place. And the word got out to the officials that there was spies in the land. And they came looking for them, and they came to Rahab's door. And she says, no, they, they were here, but they've gone. And she lied to the men who were about to take and kill the spies. Rahab lied. She did not bear false witness against her neighbor, though. And she told them something they had no right to know and sent them a different way. And then she took the spies and let them down outside her window on a scarlet rope because she lived at the wall and in the wall and she let them down and told them the game plan to escape up into the hills in the woods for three days because she had told the, the officials of the city, the police uh, force that they had gone straight back toward the camp at the Jordan Valley. So she gave them not only 
let them escape, helped them escape, but told them how to avoid being captured. Three days later then, when the search was complete, they hadn't found them, they thought they'd finally made it home. Then they made it back safely to the camp of Israel. That's the story. And here's the, here's the lesson. He just simply says that Rahab herself believed God, trusted God. If I can, let me flip over here real quick. I like to read it right out of the text itself. Listen to the story. As um, the spies had been sent in by Joshua and they'd looked all around the place, then um, in conversation with them, this is what Rahab says. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And she believed God. She believed in God. She confessed God, the true God of heaven and earth. And not only that, she went beyond just wanting to confess God, but she wanted to be part of the covenant fellowship. She asked to be spared and be brought into the covenant that God had with his people. She saw that God was working in Israel and that Israel was the place of the refuge. Israel was God's chosen people. And she requested that she and her family be brought into that. And I'll tell you how far she got into the family. She became one of the physical ancestors of Jesus. She apparently married somebody there, the tribe of Judah, that made her one of the physical ancestors of the lineage of the humanity of Christ. She obeyed. She believed. But she did more than believe. She put her life and her family and all at risk in order to do what she did to pull off the deception that enabled God's spies to escape and get back to the camp. This is a faith that moves out. This is a faith that steps out. This is a faith that takes chances. This is a faith that is willing to cast its lot with God and God's people and God's program. This is a faith that throws itself upon God's saving grace and then gives all in response. Faith without works is dead. But faith, it's the kind of faith James is talking about and Paul's talking about is life-giving and living and it moves us to where we need to be in our Christian life.